Welcome to the Leaders Table podcast, where policy leaders share the inside stories of their impact on the world, and we capture the secrets behind their success to help you increase yours. Education, diversity, and equity, core American issues. What are the things that I should be pushing for to inspire a movement? Let's, let's dig into that. Welcome. Here on the Leaders Table podcast, it's our job to dissect leaders in policy and education, to dig into the practices, tools, tips, and actionable strategies of their success to empower you. This episode, we're joined by Lee member Ty Dixon, who's the National Director of State Offices and Field Operations at the Venerable Children's Defense Fund. In this conversation with Ty, we tackle how to use your personal career compass to interrogate definitions of success, how to effectively lead from behind to empower others, and how her weekly worksheet helps her move the big rocks so she has time to cook amazing dinners each night and keep her weekends free. We really think you'll enjoy this conversation, and while we're at it, we'd love to know who you'd like us to invite to the leader's table and what you'd like us to ask them. Email your ideas for future guests and fun interview questions to leaderstable at educationalequity.org. And now, here's Ty Dixon at the Leaders Table. Ty Dixon, thanks for joining the Leaders Table. It's my pleasure to be here. I'm excited. We're excited to talk with you. So you are the National Director of State Offices and Field Operations at the Children's Defense Fund, a, a, a venerable um, advocacy organization in D.C. and nationally. Talk to us a little bit about what it's like to manage op- the operation side of such a venerable policy organization. I think the first word that comes to mind is it can be hectic. Um, in an organization like the Children's Defense Fund, we do various streams of work. Um, we're about 120 people, a full-time staff here, and we run at least five programs, um, and we're always responding to the need. And so I think it's a really interesting place to work where at the beginning of the year, all of your goals and priorities for the year may not be set because they're going to be directly responsive to the challenges for safety nets for families. And the new political realities or the new policy realities that face uh, that we face and that we need to help overcome and help to increase knowledge in the public about and help those people in the public understand how they're going to take action to protect the services and resources they desperately need. So we are nimble, and managing operations in a nimble space can be a challenging and hectic thing because you don't know what's coming at you when you set out in the, the year, the month, or the week sometimes. Yeah, and so you are, you're both a former teacher, you're a TFA alum, a Lee member, uh, you're also a lawyer uh, with law firm experience, I understand, and now come to, to manage a pretty large-scale operation. How did you, which of those experiences prepared you for what you're doing today? 
Well, I can't say which. I can say all. Um, so I can tell you a little bit of my story in, in uh, a nutshell. You know, I grew up in Philadelphia's public schools, and I always say that's the foundation of the work that I do today. My mother was a public school teacher for 36 years. My father was an attorney, public defender, and later became an educator that taught graduate-level education students. So the idea that education it was a social justice issue and that we needed to stand up for our most vulnerable was not something that was introduced to me late in life, but was instead the mission of my parents as well. Um, and so getting an education in the, the public school system, I saw both the, the glory of being in an environment that was uh, diverse and the environment that had people from different socioeconomic groups all going to school together. And I also experienced the variety in education and the variety in rigor, the variety in, in dedication that I was seeing in our public school system. And I thought that we could do better by our kids. And so that's been the theme that's sort of narrated my career up to this point. We as America, we as individual cities, we as urban communities, we as parents, we as, you know, aunties and uncles and godmothers uh, can also do better at advocating for our children. And so I asked myself the question pretty early on, how do I make that passion and that belief into a career? Um, and so my belief was that by becoming an attorney, I was placing myself in the best position to be an advocate. Um, I always intended to do that because I wanted to have influence over how laws impacted the lives of ordinary citizens. Mm -hmm. But Teach for America intervened. Uh, I saw a banner back in 2001 when I was on campus that said, so you want to change things. And that also seemed to align with my mission. Uh, I did want to change things, and I wanted to understand education up close. So became a teacher for that reason with the understanding that I still would become a lawyer in the long term to be an advocate for the very children and group children like them that I was teaching. Um, did that and then became an attorney and realized quickly um, attorneys have a lot more opportunity to deal with the law as it is a lot than they do to deal with it as it should be. And I felt my passions were more aligned in that should be space. And so I asked myself some tough questions after being at a law firm for three years about how could I get to the place where I was helping to fashion a society as it should be and helping to fashion uh, equity as it should be mm. and not just, you know, working with it as it was and as it had already been defined uh, by the precedent set by the court. Um, so there was a lot of, obviously, lanes that you can take to, to, to do that. I chose to go into the nonprofit space as a staff member. Uh, so the things that you didn't mention, that I was also a fundraiser uh, for Teach for America Baltimore for two years and then took that relationship-building skill set for nonprofits and moved it to the national level at Teach for America to be head of national talent acquisitions to hire for all of its national staff positions. Mm -hmm. um, and what that allowed me to do was understand that if I'm going to lead in the nonprofit space, I needed to understand the two most essential resources for a nonprofit to function, and that's its money and its people. Mm -hmm. And if I understood how you brought in resources to achieve the mission and how you managed people and brought in the right people and placed the right people in the right role, then I understood what it took to successfully take uh, so many different individual issue areas and projects and make them successful. And mm -hmm. so I learned those spaces at Teach for America and then asked myself, a broader question, which is, now that you understand this in the education reform space through Teach for America and in the teacher pipeline space through Teach for America, let's talk about all the things that are happening outside of our kids' classrooms, um, at home, with the resources their families have to feed them, 
with the programs that are available to support them with the child welfare services that they have access to. Um, let's talk about the systems in their schools that place them uh, on the path to the cradle to prison pipeline. Let's talk about how we unleash freedom and advocacy in our students. Um, how do we, how do I find the next step to doing that? And that's what brought me to CBS. Um, so it's really, you know, quite a windy path to still realize the same mission. How do I get ever deeper and ever um, more knowledgeable about how we change this narrative for children in America? I don't know if I answered your question, but feel free to ask me any follow-up if that makes sense. For sure. No, I... I, I... I per personally very much resonate with your story. I'm a lawyer as well. And one of my one of my early mentors that got me to go to law school had said to me, you know, Jason, um, a law degree is a degree in writing, thinking, and speaking. And the grand majority of us wind up practicing law for a while and going off and doing other things. Um, but what we, what we find, though, is that a lot of people before they go to law school, kind of asking the question, like, you know, I, I know I want to be Ty Dixon. I, I don't necessarily want to be Robert Shapiro. Um, I want to do what, what you're doing in the advocacy space. I want to manage things, help to make things happen, help to move, help to move issues. I think the law degree will help me to get there. How do you answer that, that question to, to, to folks who ask you? Yeah, so I, <laughs> I have funny views on that that may not be popular, but um, I think, you know, we have a lot of lawyers in our society. I always start there. Um, I also say that the law degree, while I agree with your characterization that it's writing, thinking, and speaking, I think it's an expensive way to get those skills if you're not going to use them in the practice of law. Um, and, and I tell people that all the time. Like, you know, there's, there's real, you know, financial decisions that they've, you've got to make in order to obtain one uh, for the most part. Um, and if you're going to obtain it, I think you have to have a mind toward wanting to the law to be the venue in which you negotiate these issues of equity, right? It can't just be peripheral uh, because it's just too expensive to sit on the shelf on purpose. Um, that said, people always ask me, does the law degree help? And of course it helps, right? It helps to enter society knowing the realities of what creates liability for organizations. It helps to understand rights. It helps to understand how people can advocate from a space where they are backed by a law and a system of justice that's supposed to protect them. Um, it certainly helps in social justice work. It is beneficial that people who know the law should be involved in social justice ventures to, to help to push them forward and help to help people protect and advocate for themselves as well. So it's, it's tremendously helpful in the day to day. Um, so what I tell people is, you know, I'm very conscious of the fact daily that I didn't need the law degree to do what I do now. It helps me, but I didn't need it. And mm -hmm. if I didn't need it, then what is the counter narrative, right? Like what is the thing that I could have done that could have also brought me here and made me as effective or effective in different ways than I am. Mm -hmm. And I, I always, you know, leave with a comparison point that I always have the option to just go start working on the issues that I wanted to work on and seeing where it took me. I think a lot of times in our careers, we try to answer all the questions of our entire careers at the early stage, right? I wanna answer all the questions first and I wanna make sure I'm prepared to do everything I ever might do when I'm here today at 22 or 24 years old. You know, I want, when I start out, I want the answers and all the boxes checked. And I think that's an error. I think mm -hmm. that the, the most learning I've done about what I need to be doing is on the job. Mm -hmm. out there trying to solve a particular problem, engage with the community, engage with the people around me, my colleagues, and asking myself critical questions at every point 
to say, okay, now where, what are your, what's your skill set? What are you bringing here that nobody else can bring? Um, have you learned from this environment what you most needed to learn? And what's next in terms of the question that you need to answer for yourself on this journey? Mm-hmm. And that journey question has been so significant in defining how the next piece of knowledge that I need to get where I'm going in terms of knowledge and impact, where, where will it come from? And you can't a- answer that question until you've had the immediately preceding experiences that help you to answer it. So if you try to answer all the questions on the front end, you might be running down the wrong path at full speed and you don't yet have the knowledge of what that path looks like to say like what the next question really will be. Mm-hmm. And what did teaching teach you that that you take into this management environment, this very complex management environment every day? Mm-hmm. Well, I have to go back to receiving my letter that said I was accepted to teach for America. Um, mm-hmm. I had a specific sort of narrow perspective of what I would be doing when I applied for Teach for America. And as an African-American woman who grew up in Philadelphia public schools, I believed that I would be teaching in a Northeastern urban environment like the one I grew up in, and that I would be teaching primarily African-American children based on the demographics of the schools that we usually place them. Uh, I was assigned to teach in Houston, Texas, English and English as a second language as an African-American woman. And when I think about what that particular teaching assignment taught me, uh, it's so I mean, it's, it's changed every day because up until that point, having attended a historically black college, having been an African-American woman in an African-American community, my perspective was very much that of the African-American community and the African-American struggle for equity in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, when I went to Houston and I was the only English as a second language teacher teaching the seventh and eighth grade for a middle school, I quickly realized several different challenges in America and the way that America was setting up uh, the realities and resources for other groups of people besides myself. It was tremendous learning to say, you know, I have one narrative that's very much ingrained in my experience, but there's all these other narratives that have been going on parallel to me that I've been completely ignoring. And you can't call yourself a, a, a civil rights advocate and a social justice advocate if you only prioritize your struggle and not the ways that the parallel struggles to your struggle, even though they may look different than your own, impact this entire country's uh, provisions for the civil rights of its citizens. You can't, you, you're not complete if you can't see where all of our laws and all of our regulations and all of our policy and all of our day-to-day decisions about children have to, be, include, have to include a variety of issues, have to be intersectional. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I learned a, a tremendous amount in dealing with students that were primarily Spanish-speaking students. I also had uh, students from Vietnam and students from different countries in Africa. Um, and I learned all of the variety of issues from migrant families uh, coming and going throughout the year to, to return to work in other countries and then returning back to the school system, to social promotion systems that were strategically disadvantaging the children of families that, that had to move back and forth into the country for varieties of financial and, and work reasons uh, and that were holding those children back. Uh, I taught a number of children that range from 12 years old to 17 years old in the 7th and 8th grade, right? That fact alone changed my perspective on what we expect to come out of students in America that we are retaining systemically uh, and making them too old for the school that they're attending and then punishing them for their behaviors inside that school, right? 
So what does it look like for a 17-year-old to report to the seventh grade and sit in line with 12-year-olds? Uh, and then and then behave and follow all the rules. Like, what is the psychological? Yeah, it's, it's dehumanizing. <laughs> right, sure, right. Sure, and it's so demoralizing. I, mean, it, I could I could speak all day about what I learned from those students, but it, it certainly lit a fire in my soul about justice and about really asking questions of the policies around us and saying, do they make sense? You can't just do it because it's the rule. We have to be guided by what is right and what is just and what is humane in everything that we do. And then we have to ask, put ourselves in the shoes of others. We have to be able to look at a struggle and say, if I was the person on the other end of that struggle, what would I be doing? What would motivate me? What would make me uh, get up and make a pivot and still, you know, be on the path of success? And so my, my students are still the center of everything that I do. It does seem like the the thing that America is doing the least best these days is seeing ourselves in the stories of others. There are lots of advocates, uh, myself included, for the the plight of of young Latino students and and others who are engaged in in bettering the plight of of young black boys and and folks who are really engaged in in rural education issues, but. I, I think one of the fundamental problems we face as a country is seeing the, our own struggles or all those stories as a as a united narrative or, or as as problems that are part and parcel of the same issues. It's um, so it's it's enlightening to hear you talk about this. I wonder how do you, as a person who clearly comes to this work with a great deal of passion and of personal experience, of of experiences that have kind of forged your your will to go to work to to make these things better, how do you, on a day to day basis, um, work through the fact that your work is in supporting advocates? It's it's in creating the foundations, the the strong supports to make the work happen, which means that you also don't necessarily get the work to do the work yourself. How do you? How do you, how do you come to the work with the right perspective to make that okay to someone who clearly would just as just as easily go and be the be on the front lines of trying to create policy change yourself or to try to move communities yourself? Mm-hmm. Well, I think you have to understand first how you're motivated um, personally. You know, I'm a helper. I'm I'm a giver. I want others to be great. Um, and I feel that I am great and best and my team is succeeding and when they have what they need to succeed and I've been a part of removing the barriers to their success. Um, and I did, I learned that in the classroom too, right? You know, I think that teaching is exactly what, what I do now because what I did when I was teaching was I went into the classroom with students on a variety of different levels of need um, with a, a variety of different reasons they would say they were there and in a variety of different challenges in achieving the outcomes they were seeking. And my job as the teacher was to remove the barriers to success that each of those individual people in that classroom were facing and helping them to see their work as possible and attainable for their goal attainable for themselves, right? So that was my goal as a teacher. Then in going into the practice of law, uh, you're taking on someone's challenge that they bring to your feet as the attorney And they say, we need you to help us get through this problem area. We need you to help us sort through this problem that's been created. 
and find a solution. Um, and we need you to sit down with the other side and help to advocate for our perspective, um, but then also to hear the other side, too, and come up with a way that we resolve this, right? So that, that's the, the act and the job of a lawyer. It's, it's, it's a helper. It's, it's, a, it's a problem solver. And so when then you apply that to the nonprofit space, what you find is in managing teams, um, I believe in managing from behind. You know, I'm empowering the leadership of others. I am putting other people at the forefront. I am making sure that those people can be successful when they feel uh, challenged or uncertain or blocked by systems or practices or structures that they think are not meant for their success. I help them to ask questions of those barriers and to push them in a new direction. They help me to redesign the structures that are around them so that they can be most successful. So it's really, you know, it sounds like it's different things, but it's really all the same thing. You know, if you see yourself and your orientation in the world as someone who enables others to be great, then you find a million ways to do that in a lifetime. You know, I share this very unique distinction of never having done the work of the teams I've managed in the nonprofit space. Mm-hmm. And never come up through the ranks. I've always come in as the manager of experienced people in the relative field. And that's been a very powerful seat to come into the direct management of people, to come into managing development staff that knew about fundraising when I'd never raised a dime, to come into managing recruiters who knew about finding talent all across this country when I'd never recruited anyone other than the staff that I was hiring for my own team. And then to come in now to managing executive directors and community organizers and leaders of national programs for CDF who have been doing their work for multiple years in the policy space and in the the program management space. Uh, And I have never been an executive director and I have never managed a nonprofit program independently. So I ask myself, why is that the narrative of your career? And why do people keep giving you bigger and bigger jobs to come into teams that know what they're doing in an arena and you come in as their manager to help them do that work better and stronger. And I, I have to believe that the reason why that's the case, that very learned people are putting me into these positions is because I clearly present my value add as someone who helps to flush the problems out of their holes and helps people to gather around those problems and figure out solutions to getting to and through them and to get to a place of success for a team. So that is who taught very you? much the same thing. Who taught you, you? Who taught you to be so comfortable in your own skin and confident in in your abilities walking into those environments? Oh my goodness, that's a really good question. I would say you know there's several interventions in somebody's life that teaches them to do that. Um, I mean, I would start with my parents. You know, um, I grew up with a father who was an attorney, and what that meant was that at five years old, when I was speaking unclearly or so upset about a choice that my parents had made about something I did wrong that I would, you know, be almost unable to speak clearly. My father would ask me to stand in the middle of the living room floor and to tell him what I needed and why he was wrong. (laughs) And he would have a conversation with me that very much mirrored the conversation you would have with an adult about what their needs are. Um, Mm -hmm. If I was speaking clearly, he'd ask me to repeat myself. He said he didn't understand what I said. It was too jumbled. Could I say it again? He taught me the importance of my words and that someone at a very young age was going to stop and listen to the things that I said. So if I wanted to be heard, I needed to be careful about how I said it. I needed to make sure it was clear. And I needed to be absolutely 
clear as a bell about what my needs were in a situation. Uh, that was empowering. You know, I took that into school. I took it into to law school and to college. I took it into personal relationships. I, I held a line for myself that said, you know, this is the way that I enter, and this is the way that I will be heard, and this is how that will not be compromised by anyone. But I also grew up believing that nobody's voice was comparatively more valuable than my own, that we all had value around the table, and that my parents didn't, you know, they weren't um, patriarchal in the way that they raised me, but they were, they were democratic, and they wanted to hear me too. So I, I learned the value of my voice from them. But, and my mother was a constantly affirming presence in my life. She was uh, an encourager. Um, they always taught me to, to be different and to strive for that instead of striving for sameness. And that also gave me a lot of confidence in my voice. My mother was a tremendous advocate for that. But then you, you take that foundation and you take it into a school system, right, where sometimes students who speak out are perceived as, you know, perpetual challengers of the teacher or students who think they're, they're too smart or too big for their own britches, right? And so there were several opportunities, and I always try to get people to understand this, where a teacher or a principal or, you know, a schoolyard monitor could have cut down some of that pride and independence and voice by not hearing me, right? So my parents laid that foundation, but I was put in the hands of several other people who stopped and heard me too when they didn't have to. I was lucky because around me, that wasn't the narrative of every student, right? There were students whose voices were being stifled every day, whose independence were being stifled, was being stifled every day, who were being told, you know, we don't have to listen to you. But that wasn't my experience. I had several teachers pick me out and say, this one is special, and I want to hear what she has to say. Let's elevate her voice. So that, I mean, from those teachers is where I learned that management lesson I just talked about. You know, mm -hmm. if you hear people and you make it possible for them to do the thing that they do best, you build not only a, a pride and, and joy in them, but you build a trust for you that allows you now to do work together to a point of success. Um, and I'm glad you asked that question because it's good to reflect on where that came from. Mm -hmm. I love the uh, I I love hearing you talk about this because I can hear you. I could picture you in a classroom making your kids feel bigger and louder and and more present, right? And validating their voices. And I, I just, um, I have a sense that you bring that to, to all the interactions in your, in your professional world. I try. <laughs> Ty, I want to ask you a little bit about um, how you bring it all together and especially because uh, how you hold it all together, especially because you got a lot to hold together um, at, uh, at CDF. And I think a lot of people that rely on you for guidance, for expertise, mentorship, practical tools, um, you know, uh, helping them to dig out of holes that are dug. I'm wondering what are the, what are the kind of the daily things that you rely on that you, you've learned through practice just help you to keep it together. And that could be um, a, a way of doing something. It could be a particular app or a, a piece of technology. But what are, the, what's, what are kind of the bedrocks of your, your organizational life? Sure. Um, well, you know, when you have an 80-person unit, which I do, um, and about 11 direct reports, uh, every week you have to ask yourself the question, you know, at the end of the week, um, what do I have to win? 
right? Because when you step in <laughs> to work on Monday, there's a million things that you could do. There is, you know, a thousand streams of work you could insert yourself into, a thousand problems, a thousand, you know, calls you could make, things you could check on, meetings you could enter and shadow. So if you're not clear when you come in on a Monday what the most important things are that you, you grab out of these, you know, 80 people's needs, you know, these six state offices, two community organizing teams, uh, a farm down in Tennessee where we do social justice training, our internship <laughs> program, our BPIs program, you're going to be a mess. You're going to spend the whole week spinning in a circle trying to grab onto something. So I, I really do value, and I, and I use, um, you know, planner systems. I, I've used a variety of different plan, planners, the Uncalendar. Um, now I am using the, what is this planner called? The Ink and Vault Planner. Um, and it's, it helps me to, because it is built in, it has like spaces for those big rocks for the week that help you to identify where you need to, what you need to win if everything else goes crazy. Is it paper um, or I, digital? I, they're paper. Yeah. I'm, paper. <laughs> I'm paper. So I'm, I'm born, born in 1980. So, um, I'm a very on the cusp millennial, so yeah. I haven't made this, the, the total, the total transformation over okay, to well, all of the electronic systems. We'll let um, you straddle. I, don't worry. Yeah, I straddle. I mean, I use my Outlook calendar system very well um, for appointments and meetings, but there's a million to-dos and small items that I need to see on paper and I need the joy of crossing off. Mm -hmm. um, and then, But inevitably, there's times when you get confused about what those priorities are, right? You can't sit here in an office in Washington, D.C. and be working with people who are spread across the country and unilaterally decide what the most important things are to do sometimes. And so sometimes I have to pick up the phone and say to people, hey, you know, I've got a lot of things I'm considering doing related to your team this week. Tell me what you need me to deliver on the most this week so that I can make sure that you have that by the end of the week and these other things might have to be moved. Um, so that requires a little bit more um, detail than my paper planner system allows for. So I use um, what I call a weekly worksheet um, that really spells out the things that are going to happen this week, the things that are going to happen, you know, next week, and the things that are going to happen this month at some point, right? And is that <laughs> because, in a journal or on a pad? No, that is, that is, that is electronic. That's uh, on a, in a Word oh. document. Um, so okay. it's still not Excel, but <laughs> it's in a Word document. But what it helps <laughs> me to do is say, okay, if I'm moving a priority, I'm not losing the priority. Because that can really happen in things like this. It's easy to be just responsive to the most pressing issues, and then the week ends, and the next week begins, and there's another set of pressing issues that you've now forgotten the things you've moved to that category to, um, you know, from the previous week, and you're now just in the current reality, and that's a good way to, to drop balls. So I do try my best to make sure that I'm tracking the things that I am deprioritizing so that I, I can come back to them and make sure that they happen in the time following. And what what happens when you miss something on a on a weekly basis? You just you know you got eleven eleven direct reports, eighty people relying on you. You're thinking about resources from multiple teams across states. What happens when you you know you get to Friday and you're like, listen, it's seven p.m. and uh, I miss these three things. What do you do? Well, fri Friday is when I'm doing my weekly worksheet. So I um, Friday morning. I sit down and I look at the week and I say, okay, what did I get to? What did I not get to? What have I forgotten? Um, who do I need to apologize to? Because <laughs> sometimes that's the case. <laughs> and that becomes a to-do item. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm, I'm very gracious with myself because 
I am aware that I, I do my best in every day, right? And I'm going to miss things and, and be imperfect in every day too. Um, and so the best you can do when you have found a place where you've been imperfect is to acknowledge that and then to figure out the best way that you can in the time that you have left to meet the need that needs to be met. So I put it on the top of next week. Um, I'm also very uh, religious about not working on the weekends uh, unless it's an absolute emergency. Um, and so I can probably count on one hand the times this year in very pressing circumstances that I've worked on a weekend. Um, and a lot of professionals at this level cannot say that. They spend every weekend doing some work. Um, I believe in relaxing and restoration, and I think that that's what allows me Monday to come in and be better for the things that I have to do. I give as much time as is necessary during the week. I work from the time I wake up, um, and I check my email right before I go to bed, which may not be a best practice. Um, and I, you know, I give it 100% in the week but I truly turn off on weekends. My team knows that. Um, my executive directors know that even if they don't choose, some of them don't choose to turn off on the weekends. They know that I do and they respect that boundary. And I think it's very important to be expressed about what your boundaries are and what your needs are to be able to give 100% during your week. Um, what your needs for restoration are, what you, what time you need to protect um, so that you can feel your best for the journey. And so I've been very lucky to have worked with teams who have been very understanding of that and who have allowed me that space to restore so that I can be the best for them when I come back. You know, the question I was going to ask you was, what's the most important thing you do to take care of yourself? But it sounds like that might be it. Well, I also cook. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I cook. I found, um, I didn't used to cook. My, I didn't grow up in a house where my mom cooked very much, but I have taught, I'm a self-taught cook, and I use the activity of learning how to put a new uh, entree together um, to relax and to let myself go into a creative mode. So I like to cook complicated recipes. Um, I, I use Blue Apron's delivery service <laughs> to also um, help me to stretch into new spaces with cooking. And that's a space I protect for myself. And many people say, I would never have time to do that. And I said, you know, well, you have time to do what you decide you're going to have time to do. Um, and I've decided that that's a priority for me. Absolutely. And cooking is so, so zen. It is chemistry. It is art. It is, uh, is, the, it is the act of creation right in front of you in a space that you can control. Mm -hmm. It is. I love it. Ty, if you were to give your 23-year-old self a piece of advice, what would that advice be? Uh, that piece of advice would be that the people who are giving you advice very frequently are limited by the parameters of their own experience. Mm -hmm. And you can't take too much advice. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's what I've learned. Um, that, you know, if I trace back to some of the most strongly worded pieces of advice I've, read, I've received in my life, what I see is that if I look at the parameters around that person and their experience, I see why they are giving me that advice based on what they have done and seen um, and what they're afraid of, which I think is the most scary part of advice, is that it has people's fears embedded in it that they are now transferring to you. And if you let that happen it takes pieces of a narrative that is not yours and weaves it into how you will operate in ways that may not work for you. And I'm always careful when saying that because I think it, it suggests that the people who give you advice are not well-meaning or well-intentioned, and I don't think that's true. Mm -hmm. But I think that you have to decide at some point in your life 
in your young adult life that the compass that you've got inside of you matters and it's saying something and sometimes it's going to get very loud and that that is your advisor, you know, mm-hmm. that your internal compass, when it feels really turned off by a scenario or a request or a reality or a choice, then it's trying to tell you that it doesn't align with the things that motivate you. And you have to stop and listen to that. Now, you can't recklessly do so, right? You know, of course, nobody really loves doing the reading and the work it takes to complete <laughs> assignments sometimes, and that might feel, you know, unmotivational or whatever. But on that same token, there are things that I can go back to that felt wrong that I did anyway because people told me I needed to do them and that they were the keys to success. And I took success as sort of a, a one-dimensional definition that this person knew about that I didn't. And I let them tell me the way to it as if there were one way. Mm. And when I think back on that, I wish I had really interrogated that question or that reality or that piece of advice and said, hey, wait a minute. Success is defined a million different ways. Let's make sure we're at least talking about the same destination before I follow this person's path. <laughs> Excellent. What's the mo- I'm just going to ask one final question just because I'm so curious. What's, what's your favorite failure? From your from your own from your own experience. This is going to sound funny, but my favorite failure is knowing in the first year of law school that I didn't want to practice law, and continuing till the end, and finishing law school <laughs> well enough to get a job at a law firm. Um, that that was my that's my favorite failure. It's a failure of listening to the voice that was telling me you are not going down the path that you want. What's at the end of? And you're not going to be happy in this. I, yeah. I failed to listen to the own voice inside myself, and I do consider that a major failure. I could have saved myself a lot of money by the, at the end of the first semester saying, you're not enjoying this, let's go. But mm. I didn't want to be a quitter. Mm. Um, and I took that to the zenith. I took it to taking a very competitive job and taking a very nice office that overlooks City Hall and defending very high-profile clients and corporations. And I got all the way up there and I said, you were right in your first semester of law school. You didn't want to do this. You're not motivated by this. You've reached the top of it. You've got the thing that you're supposed to want to win and you don't want it. You should have listened to that voice. But I, I say that I'm, I'm, I'm proud of that, that failure because I needed that journey. It is the thing that in that moment defined for me my voice is important inside myself so that I would not ignore it again. And I don't think if I hadn't gotten so far off my mark that I would have been able to trust the voice at the level that I trust it today. Mm. Um, Because I know where it can take me and I know how off track I can get and I know what that does to me. And when I'm on track, I know how I feel. So some experiences people just need to have. And that failure was an experience that I needed to have to get to where I am. Fantastic advice. Ty, thank you so much for your generosity here with the leaders, at the leader's table. Thank you for the opportunity. It's been really good to talk through these things. Absolutely. We hope that we can do this with you again and dive even deeper in your just buckets, buckets, buckets load of, uh, of insight and wisdom. I'm looking forward to it. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you. You too. Like this interview? Subscribe to the Leaders Table podcast on SoundCloud. You can also visit www.educationalequity.org slash leaders table for more resources to grow your impact. 
Tweet us your questions for future interviews at Lee underscore national. Thanks so much. Your host at the leader's table is Jason Urenz. I am your producer, Molly Stevens. And thanks to John Stevens for our music and editing. 